Lord Jesus, we ask your help now. Would you grant us the peace necessary for your presence to be made known to us? Would you grant us the peace that transcends understanding that is ours in Christ Jesus? Would you give us the inner quiet needed so that we can hear you speak to us? Would we come away from this building project blueprint with a plan for your very presence in our lives? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. I once had the opportunity to have a conversation with a elderly master plumber. He had a long career, and so I figured he might have a good story or two. So I asked him, what's the worst mess up you ever had on one of your jobs? He told me early on, when he was a young yet skilled plumber, he went to a job where he was doing some renovation work on the top floor of a tall apartment building. He did all the things he thought he needed to do. He shut off the water main to the building. He climbed up the many stairs to the apartment that in question. He got the pipe out that he was to replace. He got his torch to cut and to make the necessary soldering in order to, uh, welding in order to make the new pipe. He just forgot to do one thing. He didn't clear the room quite as well as he should have. As he fired up the torch, one of the sparks shot off and landed right on a mattress in the corner of the room. The mattress burst into flames, and he immediately went into panic mode. His first thought was, well, I'll just smother it. He tried to pat it out. That didn't work. Then growing more and more worried, he went for the thing that all of us would think for. He went for the water, only to find that the faucet wouldn't work because, well, he did a good job turned off the water main, no water. So in desperation, he picked up the mattress, singeing himself as he did so, and went to throw it out the window, only to discover there were bars on the window. Now at this point, he was extremely panicked and realized the only way he was going to be able to keep this building from burning down was to run all the way down the flights of steps to the basement where the water main shutoff valve was. So he sprinted with all his might. He flipped the switch, ran all the way back up, stop, up top, entered the apartment again breathlessly to discover his problem had been solved. Oh, not in the way he intended. Um, unfortunately, the pipe that he had been working on had not survived the encounter. And so instead of a raging inferno, he now had a flood, flooding deluge of water starting at the top of this building and working its way down floor by floor. Now, thankfully, that wasn't the end of his plumbing career, but uh, we know how difficult it can be to do projects, uh, certainly if you're a professional contractor of some sort. Even for those of us that do more do-it-yourself at-home projects, we know how they can turn against us, don't we? Uh, it is Father's Day. We should tip our caps to the dads that do so many home projects and do them well. Uh, let me also say for the dads like me out there that do the home projects but don't do them quite so well, we should also tip our hats to them, maybe a little less vigorously. Thanks, dads, by the way. Now, you, our text before us this morning might be of interest to those of us uh, that like building projects. 
It's a sort of construction report of King Solomon as he goes about building a very important building, the very temple where God will dwell. And yet I think there's a temptation here for those of us that maybe our hearts aren't set aflutter by a, a list of materials and blueprints that we can find a text like this and think, well, why do I need to read about all these measurements? Why do I need to know about the details of construction? For those of us in that boat, it's important for us to realize all parts of scripture are here for our instruction. And what we have here isn't just a blueprint for how a building got built 3,000 years ago. No, it's a, a blueprint for how we can pursue the very presence of God. Even for New Testament Christians, there are lessons that we must learn about the importance of God's presence and how to seek it out in Christ Jesus. The text itself is part of a larger unit that runs all the way through chapter 6. Roughly speaking, you could say chapter 6, 1 through uh, verse 10, deal with the structure of the building and the exterior. And then verses 14 to the end of the chapter deal with the interior of the building. And then in between, in verses 11 through 13, there is this message that Solomon receives from God. This morning, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 13. And as we do, we'll do so in three sections, showing three important aspects of Solomon and the way he builds a house for God. Those three sections are as follows. First, in verse 1, we see the long-awaited house, the long-awaited house. Second, in verses 2 through 10, we see the carefully constructed house, the carefully constructed house. And then third, in verses 11 through 13, we see the word concerning the house, the word concerning the house. Now, in all of this, the focus is undoubtedly on the house that Solomon is building for the God that will dwell in that house Israel's God. Fifteen times in these 13 verses, the house is used as a, a way of describing this temple that is being built. As we pay attention to the building of this house, we will learn something of the one who will dwell in it and how we can pursue his presence. Let's begin in verse 1, the long-awaited house. If you remember back to chapter 5, Solomon had made an alliance that allowed him to acquire the high-grade materials necessary to begin this ambitious building project. He had made an alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, in order to get premium lumber, the cedars of Lebanon, as well as perfect stones to be used for the construction of his temple. In chapter 6, we see that plan move into the actual construction phase. But before we get to the nitty details, the narrator wants us to look a long way back. To look back to the origins of this building project. In verse 1, we're told, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The narrator intentionally points us back, not just a short way, but a very long way, 480 years back to a very important moment in Israel's history, 
when God delivered his people from the hands of Pharaoh in the Exodus. Maybe you remember that story. They had been in bondage for a long, long time. God had promised he would deliver them, and finally he did. They crossed the Red Sea. There was relief as they realized that the Lord had brought salvation to them. And then, in a moment of thanksgiving, one of them broke out into song. Moses sang a song. It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 15. One of those verses is relevant to us because it shows this expectation that God was one day going to build a house to dwell in amongst his people. Exodus 15, verse 17, Moses sang. He said, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Moses looks forward Using a form of prophecy in the midst of this song, he predicts that God will bring his people and plant them in a place, and in that place will be his very presence in a place that God himself will live. This is undoubtedly referring to Jerusalem and the focal point of worship in Jerusalem, the very temple of God. Now that was a a long time back. 480 years, and a lot had to happen before God was to dwell in the temple that Solomon is now building. I mean, undoubtedly, he did dwell in a sense among his people through the movable tent we call the tabernacle. Uh, That had furniture that God gave specific instructions about. It had uh, all sorts of uh, implements within it for the very worship of him as God prescribed But realize at the end of the day, the the tabernacle was a little bit like an ancient spiritual RV. It was an impermanent place for God to live. People might have wondered, is there something wrong with Israel and their God? Does he not really have confidence in them enough to make a permanent place to live among them? Is, Is he hedging his bets, looking for a way out? Is maybe his promise not so sure? Well, it turns out that there were some conditions that God had revealed, even back in Moses' day, that needed to happen before he could dwell in a particular place permanently, like the temple. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, and verses 10 through 11, we see two of those conditions. Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 through 11. But when you go over the Jordan... And live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Your tithes and your contribution that you present. And all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. There are two conditions that Moses spoke of there. First, the people needed to enter the promised land. They needed to go in and subdue the peoples of the land as a a marker of God's judgment upon them. They needed to inhabit the land and control it. Now, that happened under the leadership of Joshua. 
During the conquest, that condition was fulfilled. The people entered the land, even if they didn't do so perfectly. At the end of the day, they ended up in the place God promised that they would. And yet after Joshua, no temple was built, was it? No, there was still a lot more waiting to be done because of the second condition. Did you catch that? There must be a state of peace. There must be a state of peace for God to build the place for his presence. If you think about the history of Israel up to this point, you can say a lot of things about it, but you cannot say it has been characterized by peace. Joshua was certainly a leader during a time of war. You can think of the time of the judges, that downward spiral of, uh, of humanity where things continually got worse as God brought minor victories and salvations to stave his people off from utter ruin. At the end of it, there was so much chaos, so much fighting, that the people were starving for a king, any king. And so God gave them a king, Saul. Saul, that miserable reign, it came to an unceremonious end. He fought many wars. There was not peace in his day. And even the man that followed him, a much better king, David. David, a man after God's own heart, and yet no one could say that David was a man of peace. It was like trouble followed him around everywhere he went. 480 years passed. 480 long years where a faithful Israelite might be asking, when will God do what he has promised he will do? When will he dwell amongst us in a permanent place for his presence? To put in perspective how long 480 years is, you know, we live in the day of Amazon Prime and Instacart and Netflix. We're used to instant gratification. I, I order something, I expect it to be here today or tomorrow at the latest. Consider how long 480 years really is. It's more than three times as long from our present day backwards than it is for us to the events of what are celebrated now as Juneteenth in 1865, when the freedom for African Americans from slavery was declared in the state of Texas. It's, if, if you were to take the whole block of time and just march us back 480 years from this year, that would bring us back to 1540. That would put us right during the early years of the Protestant Reformation. That's actually the year that Oliver Cromwell was, uh, was uh, executed uh, as a part of the, the Reformation's conflicts. 840 long years had to pass. And yet, pass they did. And now it is the time. It is the time to build. And what joy there must have been amongst God's people as they saw the temple being constructed. It was constructed in a place that it would have been quite visible up on that temple mount. I can't help but imagine the wonder in people's hearts as they saw the construction begin. But what is it going to be like? Oh, this anticipation, what is the actual structure going to be like? Well, that's what we see in verses 2 through 10. We see the structure come up together, and it is an impressive building. 
It's up on that commanding perch of the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. It's uh, made up of one rectangular main structure. It's called either the sanctuary or the nave. It's described in verse 2. The units used to describe it are called cubits. It's uh, essentially from a forearm to the tip of the finger. It's about a, a foot and a half. If you do the math, it works out to this size. It's about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. That's slightly smaller, slightly larger in some dimensions than our own church sanctuary. So this is not a terribly large building by our standards today. Yet back in those days, it would have been an impressive building. Um, It's worth noting that it is twice the size of the tabernacle in every direction. So the proportions stay exactly the same. It just doubled in size. I can't help but think that people were supposed to notice and realize that there was in a, uh, a greater way God's presence among them in this permanent temple. Now, in addition to this sanctuary building, this rectangular uh, sanctuary nave building, there is also something built on the front of it. It's called a vestibule. You see that in verse 3. It's a porch that runs across the whole width of it, and it's about 15 feet deep. It would have added some depth to the building for sure. Now, it needs to be noted that these sorts of buildings were not unique to Israel. Um, It it seems as if Solomon borrows the types of buildings that other religions in his day use for their deities using a a kind of tried and true blueprint and making it his own in his building of Yahweh's temple. That shouldn't bother us. It actually gives us great confidence that this was written at the time in which it claims to be written. It's a type of building that someone would think to make back then. But we also need to notice that the impressiveness of this building doesn't come from the size or even the high quality of the materials, as high quality as they were. If you look at some of the neighboring countries like Egypt, there were building projects and temples that dwarfed this temple that Solomon is building. He was not trying to build the biggest and the best. And yet there was something so profound and so deep about what he built that it would have left everyone in awe. There's two aspects of it that I want to draw your attention to, of why this was a special building. The first comes from this structure described in verses 5 through 6 surrounding the building. So you can think of this rectangular uh, box, which was the sanctuary, and then around it, a little bit like a hot dog bun around a hot dog, running the whole length of it all, all the way around the back to the very front, is this other separate structure that gets connected to the sanctuary building. It's three stories tall, but there's some odd features to it. It's got a number of compartments that we could have used for storage of offerings, maybe for priests to stay in and do ministry. But the strange thing about it is that these three floors are widest at the top floor and narrowest at the bottom. Now, I'm no structural engineer, But I remember from my kids' TV shows that the big blocks go on the bottom and the smaller blocks go on the top. So what is the reason for this upside-down, unintuitive way of building this outside structure? Well, it's for a very important reason. It's to keep 
this outside structure from needing to make any holes in the sanctuary building itself. You see, instead what they did is the wall that they built, they put little steps along the way that the floorboards could rest on top of. You can think of just like a a stair step pattern on the wall uh, for this structure. Then they could lay the wood for the floor against it and just lean it up against the wall of the sanctuary and not have to breach the wall of the sanctuary even one tiny hole. Why is that important? It is the first of many markers that will show us the importance, you might even say the separateness of this place that God will dwell. It can't have even one blemish. It can't have even one hole other than the one that God intends for people to come in in order to be in his presence, the very front door. So the first odd features in verse five through six is storerooms around the side done in such a way that no holes were made in the sanctuary itself. But then there's a second odd way that it's built. It's found in verse 7. It's worth us reading that verse. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. If you've been around any construction site, No one will accuse them of being quiet places. There's hammering, there's sawing, there's the noise of materials being moved around. These days we also have the roar of various engines. Something utterly unique to Solomon's temple is that there would have been no noise inside this house as it is being built. No hammers, no chisels, no saws, no clang of any metal whatsoever. All the materials had to be pre-cut, prefabricated, and brought in with care. Now think about the precision that requires. You may have heard of the maxim, measure twice, cut once. Some of us are more of the persuasion to measure once and then hit with a hammer until it fits. Think of the stakes though for what Solomon is doing with this project. These stones are quarried hundreds of miles away and brought with great, great difficulty along to this temple and they could not be adjusted in the slightest as they were built. They had to fit perfectly. Why all of this? It shows us the need for peace. The need for peace to enjoy God's presence. There was a holy hush over this place. Even during the season where it was being built, there was a peace to this house. Not just peace in the country as a whole, peace inside the structure as it went up. Because God's presence can only be enjoyed in the stillness and quietness of true peace. Now you might expect after all these details of the structure, the outside, the the frame and the walls of the building. And and we even get notes there about the, the windows and the roof being put on. You might expect Solomon to then jump into, uh, this account to jump into the details on what goes inside the house. But that's not what happens. Instead, there is an interruption in verses 11 through 13, a really important interruption. 
And I think the most important part of this whole passage. In 11 through 13, Solomon receives a word from God. That's our third section. The word concerning the house. The word concerning the house. Verses 11 through 13. We're not told how God brings this word to Solomon. Whether it was a dream or a prophet or some other way. We're not told exactly how Solomon received it. What we are told is it happened in the midst of his building it and it was concerning the very work he was doing to build the temple. God interrupts this work. Even as he had promised that it would happen under Solomon's reign, God sees fit to confirm to Solomon mid-project, confirm that he is to build the temple and the conditions for blessedness for his people. The, the main structure of God's word to Solomon is a very important structure throughout the Bible. It's a if-then statement or a condition statement. If a certain condition is met, then this will happen. It could be used for, for blessings. It could be used for punishments. In this case, it's used for blessings. There's, the if is found in verse 11. Uh, verse 12, uh, concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. The if to this condition statement is essentially Solomon's obedience, his faithfulness to God. He says it three different ways. Walk in statutes, to keep the rules, obey the commandments, in short, faithfulness to his God. Now, it's really important to realize that this condition is on Solomon himself as king. And yet what comes next, the then part of the condition, it applies not just to Solomon. It applies to the whole nation. There are three things God promises. If Solomon will be faithful, if he will obey, he will confirm the word that he gave to his father David. That is, he will preserve the dynasty of Solomon and his lineage as kings over Israel. Second, he will dwell amongst his people. His presence will be in the midst of his people just like he had promised. And third, he'll never forsake Israel. He'll never forget them. Never abandon them. Always be by their side. Always be there to rescue them. With the giant if. If their king is faithful. Now this is one of the examples in the Bible of Israel's king operating as a corporate head for God's people. The people's fate is tied to the faithfulness of their king. If he is obedient and keeps his faithfulness to the Lord, then they will be blessed. And if he abandons the Lord his God, if his heart is found to be impure, they will reap judgment. Well, if we look ahead to chapter 11, we know how Solomon fares in this test. His heart fails. We see the flaws along the way, even this, at this point in the journey, his, his tendency toward chasing foreign women and accruing for himself great wealth and even allowing high place worship, being soft toward idolatry. All these things will come together and bring great ruin 
on the king that presided over the golden age. And that means God's people will not live in a perpetual golden age. Instead, they will have the sorrow of watching it fade before their eyes. It's a pretty big if-then statement that God makes. And its implications were felt by God's people for hundreds of years. So that's what this text is about. But the question is, what does it have to do with us? How do we apply it as New Testament Christians who don't have a temple on Mount Zion the way they did back then? What does this have to do with us? Let me give you four lines of application. Think of this as a blueprint for how you should pursue the presence of God. First, Learn the lesson that God's presence requires his peace. To enjoy God's presence, you must first, you must first have God's peace. That holy hush wasn't just necessary for the building of the temple. Now we need a holy hush on the inside if we are to enjoy fellowship, communion, the very presence of God. And common way of, for us describing this, we talk about our quiet time with the Lord. We're talking about our time in prayer and meditation and reading scripture, or our time singing to the Lord. It's important to realize what we're aiming for there is not quiet of our environment, although maybe that would be helpful. No, what we're looking for is quietness on the inside. To be still and know he is God as we seek his very presence. You realize the example of Jesus shows us how important this is. Jesus, the man that experienced God's presence perfectly his entire life. Do you remember how often he went away to pray, to be with his heavenly father? I know so many of us struggle at this. I'm, uh, uh, I count myself among us uh, on this point. I don't want us to fall into the idea that a certain number of minutes is the key to experiencing God's presence. And yet I do think there is a, a trend that I've noticed as a pastor among so many of us. We are so busy, so active, so frantic, running from one thing to the next, that we very rarely have unhurried time to seek the presence of God. Use this as an example of how important it is to even go out of your way to seek that sort of quiet, to seek God's presence even at high cost. Maybe this week you need to slow down and do just a little less so that your heart can be quiet and you can hear from the Lord. Second line of application. We need to make note of the deliberate pace of God's promises. Make note of the deliberate pace of God's promises. I'm sure it was a frustrating experience to wait for God's promise for a temple to be built to come to fruition. 480 years, that's a long, long time. You can imagine some people getting cynical and giving up. I don't think that's foreign to the Christian experience at all. Many times we struggle mightily to wait on God to fulfill his promises to us. Sometimes it's things in our own life and heart that we are waiting for God to make good on his promise, like a victory over a sin that besets us. 
We know one day it'll come, and yet it seems like the battle goes on and on and on. Maybe on a larger arc, it's looking forward to the return of Christ and the day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and remake all things. And we begin to lose heart asking, how long must we wait? Solomon is one of many that learned the lesson that even though the Lord's promises may come at a very deliberate pace, they are not slow and they will surely arrive. God doesn't look at time the way we do. For him, a day is like a thousand years. And one thing we need to remind ourselves again and again is his time frame is perfect and ours isn't. Maybe this week you find yourself waiting and you find yourself growing weary in your waiting. Would you, would you make a note in your heart that your God keeps his promises even if he often does so at a deliberate pace? Third line of application. I think it's legitimate for us to notice how God's confirming word to Solomon came in the midst of his labor. And, and that means at times we need to be willing to, be, to move forward in faith. We need to be willing to move forward in faith. Solomon had surely heard the prophecy that he would be the one to build the temple. But apparently God had not spoken to him about this topic since then. His blueprints, his ideas, all his plans, the Lord had not said yay or nay, and yet that didn't paralyze Solomon. No, he took steps forward without full information. I think they are faithful steps. I think that they are st steps that show trust in his God. And you notice how in the midst of his doing, in the midst of his service, the Lord meets him. There's plenty of parallels in the New Testament Jesus calls his disciples to come and follow him. He doesn't give them all the details of what that's going to entail. No, he, he fills those in along the way, even at the end of his ministry on earth. He's still confirming in their hearts he really has called them. You can think of Paul as he preached in cities where there was great opposition to him. And, and God waited until after Paul was ready to leave to stop him and say, no, 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 Paul, keep preaching. I have many people in this city. God's timing and the way he confirms things in our lives, it's not by accident. He intentionally stretches us by making us take steps forward without full information to do so in faith, to trust him so that we would grow in our assurance that he is trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what the Lord may have in front of you as a bold step of faith this week. Maybe it's starting up an evangelistic conversation with a coworker. Maybe it's starting some sort of ministry that he's laid on your heart. Maybe it's having a hard conversation with somebody that you've been holding resentment against for a long time. Regardless for what it is, I, I pray that you will learn this lesson from Solomon. Then moving forward in faith, it's often what the Lord calls us to. This is a way of personal testimony. I've been thinking a lot about my own journey in ministry. And as I look back at the twists and turns, there has not been a single call toward a particular ministry in my life that has not had some manner of God interrupting or upending my plans. 
Each and every time there has been something I thought would go down one way and a much better thing that ends up happening as a result. We need to be willing to move forward in faith and be ready for God to interrupt us with what, with what he wants to happen. Fourth, and most centrally to this passage for us as New Testament Christians, we need to, we need to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we need to be filled with awe for our obedient king. We need to be filled with awe for our obedient king. So much of Israel's fate hung on the obedience of their king, and unfortunately, he let them down. And yet, we have such a king, such a leader over the church of Jesus Christ, King Jesus who perfectly fulfills all of the requirements, the biggest if statement of all, and brings to us all the blessings that come from the biggest then of all. Jesus obeyed all the rules of his father. Every commandment, every statute, every jot and tittle. He said his very food was to do the will of the father that sent him, he was so committed to obeying his father, he even obeyed to the point of his death, giving up his life willingly as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus doing that isn't just so we would say, wow. It's also to accomplish something. In fulfilling all the commands of God as the king over God's people, Jesus unleashes the torrent of God's blessings that were withheld from kings that failed like Solomon. He brings all the promises of God to God's people, including God's very presence. All the curses of God were poured out on him as he bore the sins of all that would believe in him. And all the blessings of God are now ours because our king fulfilled every single bit of God's command. Now, if you're tuning in this morning and you're not a Christian, this is one of the most important things for you to understand about Christianity. We don't believe that anyone can ever obey well enough to be right with God. You can never make up for the wrong you've done. You can never get on God's good side by improving enough. No, what you need is instead the obedience of someone else. That someone else is Jesus Christ. He came and lived the perfect life. He died a death for sinners like you, acting as a substitute, absorbing the very punishment you deserved. And now he offers to you his perfect record of obedience. God could look at you and not see all the sins you've done. Now they could be wiped away forever. Instead, he would see an obedient son or daughter. But all that only happens if you believe in this King, Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, would love to have a conversation to you, with you and introduce you to King Jesus. For all of us as Christians, we need to be reminded again and again that every blessing we experience, every single one, no matter how big or, not, or small, is not a result of our obedience to God. It is a result of that great if then condition that Jesus fulfilled. 
All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus for you because Christ perfectly obeyed his father. That means whether it is the blessing of joy in your heart as you go through a trial, the blessing of material prosperity that you are entrusted with to steward for Jesus, or even the, the very blessing of being able to have confidence in heaven. All that you receive is because of King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, shouldn't that fill our hearts with joy? Jesus himself promised that God would come and make his home in us. That the very presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit would be inside of each of us. That's not because we have kept his law perfectly. No, it's because Jesus kept it perfectly. So this week, would you encourage your heart with this reality? You have an obedient king, and you have every blessing in heaven because he did everything perfectly on your behalf. What gift of grace is Jesus, my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for all my life is wholly bound to him. O strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being the king we need. Thank you for obeying every one of your father's commands, for fulfilling the law perfectly, for unleashing all the blessings of heaven on us. Would you help us, Lord Jesus? Would you help us to find our assurance and even to find the very presence of God, not based on our own merit, but because of what you did for us. I pray for anyone struggling with that thought that they might earn your presence in some way. Would you banish that from their mind and their heart? Would you remind them that everything they need, all the promises of God are yes in you. Help us to go with joy and with a sense of your peace and your presence in our hearts. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.